Good day there, guys, and welcome back to the Blowing Cartridges podcast. I am one of your lovely co-hosts, Zach Clark, and as always, joined by my fellow co-host, Brendan Tam. Brendan, putting you on the spot, what is going to be the best game of 2022? Go. Oh, that is, uh, th- that, that is definitely a spot you've put me on right there. I'm going to go with Elden Ring. I reckon, I know it comes out next month, and I think that's going to be the one to beat in terms of critical acclaim that it's going to receive, would be my Nostradamus prediction. Yes, uh, Brendan, putting to your skills that we've honed, uh, so what people might not know is for the last few years, Brendan and I play this game called Fantasy Critic, where uh, you sort of form a team of, of games coming out and try to predict how uh, good they're going to be or how they're going to review uh, in order to have, I guess, the most, you know, highest reviewing games in your your team for the year and we are fortunate enough to have the creator of the fantasy critic site and game steve here today so steve welcome to the to the podcast hi thanks for having me awesome and i know i just did a very uh brief uh description of the site but did you want to give a bit more of a thorough explanation for those who have maybe never heard of your website uh, and your game i suppose so Fantasy Critic is a lot like fantasy football in fantasy f- or other fantasy sports, but in fantasy football, you play as play as the general manager of a football team, and you're making decisions on who is on your fake football team, and the better that they do in their real actual games, the better they do in your fake game. And in Fantasy Critic, you are playing as a video game publisher that needs to decide what games they're going to choose to publish in the upcoming year. And the way that those games are scored is based on how well they review, based on the aggregate score from OpenCritic.com. So you're looking for predicting the best-reviewed games of 2022. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, it's a ton of fun. As I said, uh, Brendan and I have been doing it since, I've been doing it since 2019, I think. And Brendan, you joined in, what, 2022 in our little league with our with our friends? Is that is that right? Yep, 2020, the year, the second year you guys did it, I jumped in. I, I missed out the first year, unfortunately. Yes, and I think you were either runner-up or third that year because of... Um... I was third, so I was second in November. I thought I was going to be first at the end of November because Cyberpunk released and the initial Cyberpunk open critic scores were quite high as I think we can all recall but I remember watching sort of day after day it kept on going down 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 and I think it went from about an 88 average on open critic to I think oh like mid mid to high 70s I think I don't know what it is at this point in time but it was quite the decline from memory and with with that went my dreams of beating you that year unfortunately Zach yeah no and has uh, shored up my now two in a row uh, years of, of winning, hopefully three this year. We'll see how, how things go. But, you know, one of the key skills we sort of touched on for this game is trying to predict how good a game's going to be. And I think, you know, there's a general consensus amongst us, like gaming enthusiasts, that you can sort of get a vibe for how well a game uh, is not only going to review, but I guess also how well you're going to enjoy it off the pre-release um material that that the publishers or the developers put out and we want to sort of explore that concept of like how what is it that sort of you can pick up on say you know Elden Ring is going to probably get a a 90 and lots of people including ourselves will love it versus I don't know like a bio mutant we're like oh yeah that's going to be okay (laughs) and um you, you tend to get it sort of spot on so 
we've got a you know, good good crew here to discuss that. Steve, I might throw to you because obviously this sort of skill was a big reason for you starting your your website and your game. Is there any you know thoughts or insight to you know some of the things that you think help you pick what's going to be a great game versus a okay game versus a not so good game? Sure, I'm going to start with like some of the lessons that I've learned in my years of playing Fantasy Critic because I came into Fantasy Critic when we first started with just my friends in 2018. I was thinking, there are so many games that get an 83. You should be shooting for, like, at, at the average score that you get, that a game's going to get, is going to be an 83. Like, that should be easy. And that's just not true. If you've played Fantasy Critic, you know that that's tough to find those games. Because here's the thing. Those games come out, there's plenty of 83s to go around every year. But... One, you don't always know them ahead of time. There are plenty of games that sneak up on you. And two, there are less than you think, and there are way more games that get a 74 or a 68, and you don't think about them ever again after two months after they come out. It has proven harder than I guessed to find uh, the real gems, especially when you're competing with a bunch of people to um that's one of the things about fantasy critic is uh if i have a game on my roster no one else in my league can have it on their roster uh, so we can't all have elden ring one person gets elden ring one person gets horizon forbidden west etc so the the that's not really a a tip but just a you you got to take your wins when you when you um when you see them if you think a game might get an 80 that's absolutely a the game you would want to pick but as far as how to predict a game, I do think that, generally speaking, a single-player game reviews better, perhaps because there's less that can go wrong. A multiplayer game can look great and have a bad launch, and that, like, reviews rarely get updated after a launch. Like, if Battlefield 2042 gets fixed this year, how many people are going to go back and change the review score? Um, even if it by the end of this year is a pretty good game i don't know yeah i agree i mean one i can think of uh that had a massive turnaround was um rainbow six siege where i remember that reviewed pretty averagely if not poorly when it came out uh, came out and now it's definitely beloved by the fans but i wouldn't even know if uh open critic or metacritic have any updated scores i reckon they don't um or if they do, it might be like a couple of sites, like maybe an IGN might do a you know yearly update uh, on certain games, but very very few do. Um, so yeah, I agree with that sentiment. Brendan, what about you? Is there anything you look for in terms of seeing what's going to be a good game or or otherwise? Oh, I think it's probably elements that a lot of people who I guess either play Fantasy Critic or generally keep an eye on the gaming industry and releases that are going to come out. The games that always have the most hype around them, I'd argue there's sort of a correlation between if a game has hype and whether it's going to review well. Of course, that's not always the case, like as we already touched upon Cyberpunk and I'm sure will come up again. But I think overall, there's elements like developers and, the, and whether it's in a particular series or the like that are generally going to be pretty solid indicators like to take Elden Ring again from software games since the release of the first Dark Souls has reviewed pretty well. If you go back to their older games in their catalogue like Kingsfield and 
all oh, those card RPGs on the GameCube and Otogi on the Xbox and all those games. Yes, maybe they didn't review as well back then, but contemporary from software, it's a pretty good bet. They'll review well. So you definitely see when in Fantasy Critic, when the draft opens for the league, when the league's starting up, that the games that go first are generally those major releases that people know are going to come out for the next year from those established publishers and developers. So Elden Ring, your Horizon Forbidden Wests, your um, all Starfield from Bethesda, and all, all, all manner of games like that, um, Breath of the Wild 2. Like, those are the ones that people go to, I guess, the reliable picks first. It's similar to a fantasy football league. You always go to those marquee players. And, yes, sometimes there's going to be there'll be games or players or there'll, there'll be things that overperform they overperform what you expect but and that's how you can win often in those margins you pick things that no one else is going to pick and you you can serve your cash and you can win that way but that's not always the easiest thing to do yeah i think the developers are really interesting one because uh obviously that's a a track record you can kind of look up but obviously at, there are some developers that perhaps were once held in high esteem and then aren't or vice versa had a shoddy track record and then have all of a sudden in the last few years or, or maybe even over 10 years given how infrequently some companies put out games uh they've turned their reputation around uh steve i'm curious do you often like say when you're picking a, a stuff for your teams do you look at the developers past few releases and how they've reviewed or is that not something you put as much stock in into when looking at you know other pre-release you know media and such for the particular games I absolutely look at the developer's track record. I actually think that's probably the most important thing. There are absolutely indie developers that will sneak up on you, but usually they're really hard to predict when one of those indie darlings is going to come out. Now, everybody's excited for Silk Song because now we know about Team Cherry, but how many people were excited about Hollow Knight? leading up to its release um a lot of those indie games can sneak up on you but then taking a game from an established indie developer or you know the new naughty dog game or the new insomniac game the new from software game like you those are going to be your top picks because there's rarely do those teams miss one thing i find interesting with developers and i'll I mean, I'm going to have to talk through some examples that are all pre, obviously, fantasy critics' time, uh, is I guess that key man or key people risk, um, I should say, when there is staff changeovers and then the quality starts to question mark. And we obviously aren't always privy to when that happens. But some examples I can think of, probably from when I was a kid, was um, obviously Rare when they transitioned to Microsoft uh, and a number of key staff, including the founders, left. And you definitely noticed a change, I guess, in their quality from the you know nintendo 64 era to the xbox and then 360 era uh and even other things like i think bioware comes to mind oh yeah bioware absolutely is a massive one i think of like call of duty and infinity ward not that infinity ward is considered a bad developer but i think they lost their like you know you're definitely going to put out a 9 or a 10 out of 10 uh, sort of reputation when uh, you know Zampella and, and Co left and formed Respawn, for example. Certainly, there's not too many people, even Call of Duty fans, that hold Ghosts or Infinite Warfare in high regard. So I think you're right on that. Yeah, and that's re- that's a really interesting element because we don't always have 
good insight to that, right? Like, other, unless the, the the individuals have made a name for themselves and been very public-facing, a lot of that stuff can be really behind the scenes. I mean, you look at occasionally a, a game, you know, programmer or artist or developer's uh, Twitter or LinkedIn, and they've worked, you know, at like 10 different places over eight years, basically. They just move around quite a lot in the industry, and it's I find that fascinating because, uh, I don't know, like, is that something, I guess, do you go, because we're all pretty tuned in, I think, in comparison to the average person are you looking for those key individuals and saying oh they've left this now shakes my confidence in either the next project or just that studio in general at all i mean i'll start with you brendan is that something you consider i guess to quickly segue your question i'll I'll also go back and answer it but i think that's also a good way of sometimes looking at if you're looking at let's say an indie developed game or a game from a studio that's just been set up and doesn't really have a track record behind it, you can have a bit of a look on, well, who's actually involved in this, let's say it's a Kickstarter for an indie game, or who's involved in this new startup studio? Was it, let's say, was it an art director from a Call of Duty or a Halo game, or is it just some random people that don't really have any credits to their name? And you're always a bit more likely, I think, to back those more established figures, even if you don't really know what their contribution to that. Let's say they were a part of a major developer or major publisher. You don't really know what they were doing there, but you get the sense that oh well, they're experienced. They've they've been involved in some well high budget, well made games. That therefore they they generally know what it takes to make a good game. So you can kind of make a bit of a speculative pick there. But I think. To answer your question, I'd definitely say it is something that I do try to keep in mind, and it's why I'd I'd be very hesitant to pick a game like a new Battlefield these days or like a Bioware game because it's definitely studios that are a bit on the decline, and it's not always just the studio; it's also the publisher as well. That you get a sense if you're enthusiasts like us and you follow gaming industry news and you follow what's going on in particular publishers, you you get a sense on whether they're on the up and up or whether it's probably not going to be a release you want to be anywhere near. Like, I get, I think a great example would be late last year, the GTA remaster. Like, that's something you could have picked up in Fantasy Critic with the if your league allows you to pick remasters. And that's one that I think even before it released that people were a bit hesitant on what the quality of it was actually going to be. Since, I guess, 2K don't have a fantastic track record when it comes to those sort of releases. To go back to uh, where this started, which was um, can key people leaving a team shake your confidence in a game? I think it absent of a few bad games, like after Mass Effect 3, key people left Bioware, and then we had Mass Effect Andromeda and Anthem. Now my faith in Bioware has definitely been shaken a bit. But until, like, I... Key people leaving wouldn't be enough for me to not pick a game that otherwise looks good from their former studio uh, until it. I've, I've seen that they've really suffered without them. Conversely, though, someone really good joining a studio will get my attention to pick a game, even not having seen what they've done together. It's interesting. I'm trying to think of an example. I mean... The one person I hear about moving a lot is like Amy Henning from a writing mm-hmm. perspective, but I also feel like she's got such an unlucky track record. She of, certainly does. Like yeah. everything getting cancelled. <laughs> I think that, uh, I think his name is Stig Amason, uh, joining the Jedi Fallen Order team at, at Respawn 
like respawn making star wars with a former god of war developer like there's there were a lot of reasons to believe in that game i think uh what are some other examples the somerville devs uh that used to do they used to be at play dead and they did limbo and inside they're doing somerville which is supposedly coming out this year that i think there's good reason to have confidence in them but on the flip side there's a really interesting i mean like you can sort of look at big key people going i'm sick of working at you know big studio i'm going to start my own company and we've seen some really mixed results with that right like obviously i think of like say like uh igarashi did a great job with bloodstained that i think for the most part Mm -hmm. delivered uh on his promise (laughs) but then obviously the infamous example being mighty number nine and inafune showed that oh maybe maybe he wasn't the the special source behind mega man that we assumed he was because he was the face of it um, or even like Yuji Naka with Sonic. I mean, maybe some people say Sonic was never good, uh, but but uh, <laughs> I have heard those takes. Yeah, but uh, yeah. his track record's a bit more spotty, I guess, in in a post Sega, you know, life. Ukulele is another one potentially. Mm, yeah, exactly. I, ukulele was pretty middling, though. I think the sequel I enjoyed a lot more because they just went to basically just Donkey Kong Country with a with different characters. Yeah, Brendan, you were going to talk. I think you got burnt a little bit last year with uh, with Yuji Naka on, on Bal and Wonderworld. <laughs> yes, uh, Yuji Naka is dead to me these days after <laughs> Bal and Wonderworld. Though I probably should have known better because I, I am someone who bought Rodea the Sky Soldier at launch and was also burnt on that. So I, I really should have known better on that pick, unfortunately. And I think another one would be Yu Suzuki with Shenmue 3, which had a lot of hype when that was announced. But I think overall a lot of people probably saw that coming that it probably wasn't going to be as well regarded as the original games it was a lot of more hope than sense i think sometimes when it comes to those sort of releases here's actually the best example of me getting burned by a game that looked interesting because of some one particular person that joined it the artist behind the the concept artist behind the middle gear games uh yoji shinkawa uh, joined oh, no. a game that came out back in 2019 that I drafted in one league and that that pick single-handedly lost me the whole league because that game was left alive. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, which has, yeah. a, I think, a 38 on Open Critic. You know, I think you're, you're probably patting yourself on the back for um, putting in a cap to how many points you can lose. And um... Yeah, it's the games like that that have caused that rule change. For those not aware... In Fantasy Critic, every point above 70 gets you a point. Every point below 70 in the Open Critic score loses points. And so that means that the simple version of that rule, if a game gets a 20, that's a minus 50, which means you're done. If you took eFootball, that's it. You're done. <laughs> the game got a 20, you lost 50 points, your whole year is over. I don't care how many good games you have, it's over. I, ch- I tweaked the rules for 2021, uh, actually, so that basically... The wor- as a game starts to do e- worse and worse and worse and worse, each point is worth less points off. Uh, and the reason for that is, for both of you, to you, what is a 91 versus what is a 98? What does a 91 tell you? What does a 98 tell you? Yeah, it's a tough question. Like, I mean, I feel like... It, it doesn't... It's not a lot, to be honest with you. I mean, like, if a game 
interested me in its premise anyway and it got like a 91 or a 98 my my purchasing decision doesn't change and probably my enjoyment doesn't change uh maybe all the changes is like oh yeah the 98 it's probably going to win game of the year at the game awards or something like that um but maybe doesn't necessarily change my own personal decisions i agree there's definitely a limit where you're saying well if something scores over a 90 well that's probably a good game and conversely well if something's scoring 50 and below, well, I'm probably not going to play it unless it's something so niche that I'm probably going to enjoy it even though nearly everyone else out there won't. So it, I think there, there are diminishing returns. I'll be honest. I actually think that's what what you two just said is the opposite of what I would think, how I view the games in the 90s, which is that I think a 91 is, you know... A, a very solid game. There's a couple of those every year. They're, they're going to be on the list for a game of the year. A 98 you get once a decade and are greatest game of all time material. Uh, I think that those seven points tell you a lot, in my opinion. Whereas uh, the, yep. the follow-up question was going to be, you have a game that has a 58 and a game that has a 21. What's the difference between those games? That's a, that's also a very good question. Because <laughs> I feel like it's it speaks more to the state of how modern reviewers work in that I think we can all agree that generally there's a particular scale, that, well, there's a particular range in the scale that a reviewer will um, score a game. Like, if they think it's a good game, it'll probably be anywhere between an 8 or a 9. Tens are very rare. Like, some, some reviewers give tens out more than others, and generally you can... You can kind of pick what sort of games will get a 10, like Metroid Dread got a few 10s in its own right. Whereas when it comes to, is this a bad game? Generally, it really depends on the game itself. Like some, if a game is absolutely broken, an outlet like IGN and a viewer there might give it, let's say a 2 out of 10. Or if it's a bad, if it's a game they didn't enjoy, they'll give it a 4 or a 5. It's, it really depends on how brutal and how, um, yeah, how brutal a viewer is willing to be, I find, in that some, I know Open Critic really scrapes a, a diverse range of different reviewers, and there's some reviewers out there that are very willing to be brutal to games, but then conversely, there's some reviewers out there that will give tens to particular genres of games, and Zach and I know some outlets that do that. It's a bit subjective, is my view. Yeah, I, I actually, I've sort of, you've sort of reframed my... So, going back to your question, the 50 versus the 20... I think almost there I'm starting to wonder, like, there's almost a mechanical uh, uh, issue probably with the 20, right? Like, the 50 probably functions at least enough to be playable, but it's just not fun. Versus at the 20, I almost expect it to be completely broken. But at that point, I also don't care because I'm probably not going to play the 50. Uh, And again, unless it's got, like, such specific interests for me that I'm like, even though this is a 50, I just need to experience it. In fact, I might even play the 20 just because it might be funny. Sure. You know what I mean, like, it's yeah. like a, that might be more appealing from that perspective. I think you have actually reframed the point around the 91 to the 98 because I think you're, it is very, very, very hard to get the breadth of reviewers on, say, an open critic, given that's what your uh, site uses. But, you know, if people use Metacritic, it's much of a muchness to agree on a 9 or a 10. Like, there's usually a detractor or two, enough to weigh it down. So I, I do almost agree now that you've sort of sort of talked me through it. That's my point, is that there's... And I'm not saying that this is definitely true, but this is the way that I've curved the Fantasy Critic points, is that there is more difference between a 91 
and a 97, which is only six points, than there are between a 20 and a 55, which is, what's that, 35 points. Because a 20 and a 55, you're probably not playing either of those games. And there are definitely some people that have limited time or limited money, and maybe they only play one or two games a year. And that 91 versus the 98 is a big difference for them. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it is interesting. I will say, obviously, like anyone, my personal taste also then sort of flex those a little bit. But um, yeah, I I think um, you're right with the people who are maybe they're buying two games a year, three games a year. Yeah, that difference between, you know, am I getting God of War or am I getting Elden Ring or am I getting Horizon, assuming you're a PlayStation player, I suppose. And it's, say, it's the end of the year, so they're all out. Uh, touch wood that God of War and, <laughs> and everything does come out if they're on your on your leagues. It's pretty massive. And I think Ezra probably does put it into that game of a game of a generation. Because I'm, I'm just thinking, I always remember in the pre-Open Critic days, there, were, there was Ocarina of Time was like a 98 or a 99 on Metacritic. And I think it didn't get equaled until, I want to say like Mario Galaxy or something. Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 3 was way up. Yeah, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2 has a 98. Yeah, that was also ridiculously high from memory. There was like, it's just like two or three games that are in that 99, 98 range. And they were they were there for like years, like untouched for like, mm-hmm. I guess almost an entire generation. If, I, if I'm assuming correctly that Galaxy was the next sort of one to hit that, that range. So like PS2, GameCube, Xbox, Dreamcast didn't didn't touch it the only other one is soul caliber the original soul caliber almost goes to show again but that's probably almost a a byproduct of um there being less reviewers and yeah and more consensus oh, back in the day. websites are very new so it was mainly magazines and those sort of publications yeah it's, a, it's an interesting it's a very eclectic mix <laughs> whereas to, to your point i just pulled up open critic and looking at the highest rank uh, highest scored games and there's Two, there's one ninety-seven and there's three ninety-sixes, and that's Super Mario Odyssey's ninety-seven, and the ninety-sixes are Breath of the Wild, Red Dead Redemption Two, and GTA Five. I mean, Nintendo and Rockstar is not a shocker to say the least. I'm almost surprised Mario Odyssey is that, is beating them though out of the out of the bunch. But again, maybe that's just because I know there were some reviewers that still took issue with either Red Dead or Breath of the Wild. To just again, probably just because they're open world games, there's more to nitpick than there is in, say, a Mario Odyssey necessarily. Oh, and I think um, not to get too much in the weeds, but I remember in the Metacritic days, there was always a few outlets out there that would always run sort of hot take review on Zelda games because Zelda games before before Breath of the Wild, I'd argue there was always that weird Zelda curve that when a when a particular game came out, like a Twilight Princess or Skyward Sword. A lot of the critical claim would be like, oh, these these are great games. These are almost as good as Ocarina of Time. You get a few dissenting voices saying, oh, not that good. They, they nitpick the hell out of it. And then after a year or two, after all the fans have played, it's generally the, the way the game is um, seen in the eyes of fans is probably a bit more diminished than when it first released. So I think that's another aspect that is always interesting to take into account when it comes to fantasy critic is that, trying to predict what how a reviewer will see a game, not necessarily how you will see the game, because we all have our own idiosyncrasies and our own preferences when it comes to games. And, like, if we were to review a game, we might be a lot more 
I guess we, we might let a lot more pass than a reviewer would and converse. It also it goes the other way as well. So it's an interesting dynamic that uh, I've, we've discussed this before, Zach. I find professional reviewers do have a particular perspective. I don't want to pigeonhole all of them to say it's sort of one whole monolith of a view, but there's some trends there, I think. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Steve, you can probably talk about this as well because I think it's been a bit of a hot topic this last couple of weeks or since the start of the new season. But um, like we're sort of talking how there's this quote-unquote Pokemon bump where like despite all the fan-like backlash, nitpicking and the complaining about what's missing, what's not there, the trees look bad, uh, that kind of stuff, like that kind of stuff isn't necessarily picked up by reviewers or at least not all of them and can also plus the love of pokemon sometimes outweighs that and they tend to score a little higher than perhaps everyone expects them to and certainly uh i think some people expected legends arceus which just launched this week at the time of recording and reviews just came out to get what it got but there's also a lot of people who thought it can't get above 80 it's going to get 75 at best and i think that sort of goes to show who's paying attention i guess to how reviewers treat certain series and what they actually care about versus what say the fans the most hardcore loudest fans actually pick up on yeah i think that uh legend arceus is like super interesting because i mean that first trailer that they showed a year ago i thought it looked awful like, it looked like it barely functioned. It looked like it was going to crash <laughs> mid-trailer, like, truthfully. <laughs> and every trailer that they've shown has looked a little better uh, up until the most recent ones this month when I was like, you know what? Maybe this actually will be good when we started to see more gameplay. But it's still, like, with a lot of games, you can say, well, it's on the Switch. It's not going to look great. The... Legends of Arceus absolutely should look and run better than it does. Like, this, it, Breath of the Wild was developed for the Wii U and then ported to Switch and came out five years ago. And this looks significantly worse than Breath of the Wild from a technical perspective. So that, it's hard to excuse. But as far as, like, people have just wanted Pokemon to do something different for, you know, 20 years... And the fact that they're getting it, I don't blame people for be, for putting up with some things that they wouldn't for another series. Because people love Pokemon. I love Pokemon. I'm probably going to play this game. I haven't played it yet. But I just want the perfect version of this game so badly that I think I will accept an imperfect version. Especially if maybe one day this game is considered good and sells well enough and people like it maybe one day we do get that perfect version of that pokemon game that we all dream of yeah the question is what lessons do the will pokemon company and nintendo learn will it be oh we can sell games that look like crap and <laughs> that's fine or will it be oh this is the style of game they want let's, it's like that's now home you it. <laughs> almost feel like we're in a lose-lose because if we don't buy it they'll say oh we should just go back to doing the same thing every time and if we do buy it they'll say okay, we can release games that look like this. <laughs> I think the sad reality is arguably none of their games have used the hardware that they've been made for, like, to an optimal degree, arguably, since the Game Boy Game and GBA Boy. Yeah, games. Yeah, I mean, Pokemon Red and Blue running on Game Boy is absolutely a programming marvel. But I don't know about any of them since then. Precisely. Like, I, I remember even back in the day, Black and White got the exact same criticism that 
nearly every other Pokemon generation since has. Like, we saw it all with uh, Sword and Shield. That was nearly most of the criticisms that it looked more like a 3DS game than a Switch game, even though a lot of that was hyperbole. It's, it has a kernel of truth. And now with Arceus, I've seen some comparison shots where people argue that there's sort of side-by-side comparisons between art assets in Arceus and art assets from the 64. And it's sort of like, well, which one is better? And uh, you can make an argument that it's the 64 assets. Yeah. Um, people definitely, in hindsight, really like the Gen 5 games, I think, for more than one reason. I think people... It's actually one of the few generations of Pokemon I haven't played. It's always been something maybe I'll get to. But people say the story in that one was uniquely good among the Pokemon games. And after now that we've had the 3D art for a few generations, I think people look really fondly on that high-effort animated sprite art because it it stands the test of time in the way that cheap-ish 3D models kind of don't. It just can see, seem kind of bland by comparison. Yeah, and obviously I think the more recent remakes, you know, Brilliant Diamond, Shining Pearl, probably prove that. Um, even though I don't dislike the chibi style that much, but it it's not as nice looking as what a, yeah, like a really nice, even, even like, you know, imagine if they said to Square, can we borrow the, um, what do you call it, the 2D HD Oh my God, oh that, my God, I would love been... that so much. <laughs> I would, like, I actually really wanted to like Octopath Traveler, and I played the demo, and I was like, I don't like the gameplay at all. But I like the art style so much that I just wanted... I, I didn't I didn't end up buying the game. But I'm really hoping for a triangle strategy. But seeing Pokemon in that art style would be fantastic. I actually think the best-looking Pokemon game, other than maybe New Pokemon Snap, which is so different, so, uh, so concentrated with the effort they can put into very specific things... Uh, is Let's Go. Let's Go, I think, looks better than Sword and Shield or uh, Legends Arceus. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. It's it it's a more defined art style. It you know it looks cute, but it looks modern, uh, and I think it works really, really well. Uh, and it's cohesive, which I think is probably the main issue I have with Arceus and uh, Sword and Shield. But not to not to cut the conversation short, I am going to go back to it sort of. <laughs> something you quickly touched on at the start, which is uh, the first trailer for Arceus and now probably just trailers in general. Trailers are often how I'd say most people, maybe not all, but most get a sense of, am I going to play this game? And it's what I guess the publishers present to the public of, you should play our game. This is the specific cut, edited, you know, together piece of footages that we've made for you uh, to, to sell you on it. Is there anything you guys look out for when you're watching game trailers that gives you signs of like, oh yeah, this is probably going to be really quality, or it's 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 not like it's going to be crap? <laughs> um, I mean, Legends Arceus running as poorly as it did is definitely uh, one example. I don't know if this is ex- exactly the answer to the question, but um, a weird one for me that was like almost the reverse of what you would expect which is you know they really sell the, a game with a trailer and then it comes out and it's just disappointing like maybe cyberpunk the game that snuck up on me because i wasn't interested in the marketing at all was Deathloop. Deathloop, maybe i wasn't paying enough attention to the marketing but it was everywhere so i really think i got a sense for it i saw that game as oh this is an asymmetrical multiplayer game 
I I don't like that. I I don't I don't generally play those games, and I kind of tuned out. And then when it came out, it's this is first person shooter, time loop, outer wilds, murder mystery, puzzle game. And I was like, okay, now I'm interested. Now I want to play this. Yeah, that, I feel like to use an inverse example, it was for me at least was like We Happy Few, where I'm like, oh yeah, this looks like a a Bioshock kind of game, and then it's like, oh no, it's a survival game. Yeah, uh, but none of the trailers conveyed that very well at all. <laughs> uh, how about you, Brennan? Are there any things you look for in trailers, or any sort of examples of trailers sort of indicating the quality, or conversely, masking the mediocrity that you uh, can recall? Well, I think a big one is how much actual gameplay is in the trailer. If it's a purely CG trailer and it's not necessary, or even if it's a high-budget release and it's a full CG trailer, it always, for me anyway, it hits either one or two warning signs in that firstly it might be, well, are they trying to hide gameplay or is it the gameplay doesn't look particularly good yet? Or And that feeds into the second point of if they aren't showing gameplay, if it is just a bare-bones trailer, then... If I'm thinking with my fantasy critic glasses on, well, is that game actually going to release in the next 12 months or not? Because I think that's one of the things that we can use trailers for. That, For example, if I'm tra- drafting something in a January, February, and I'm looking at, well, let's look at oh, wh- what was shown at Game Awards. Well, how developed were the trailers? If, if it's just a vague, oh, it's going to release in 2022, well, do I actually think it's going to release then or is it going to be pushed back? That's one of the other things that I use particular early trailers for to try to ascertain the likelihood of the game actually releasing in the given time frame. Yeah, I mean, certainly I agree. Particularly, I mean, you know, something like uh, Xbox comes to mind just because Xbox has done a lot of those CG trailers just to be like, we're making this. So like, you know, Fable, Perfect Dark. Uh, there's Senwa Saga. Um, uh What's the sub? What's the main title of that game? Um, uh, Hellblade. Hellblade, yeah, Hellblade Two: Senua yeah. Saga. I thought that that game was further along than it clearly is. Like that was clearly a very early trailer that they showed back in. Oh, was it twenty twenty that they showed that? I think. I think so. Yeah. Yep, twenty twenty when they got bored by Microsoft. They actually might have shown that in twenty nineteen. Actually, what was the, the Game Awards trailer? It was, yeah, it's definitely a Game Awards. I it, I think it was the it might have been 2019 actually because it was I think maybe the year the Series X was unveiled. it was it was it was announced at 2019 yeah and then it was quiet for all of 2020 and mm-hmm. then we saw it again last last game awards that's right yeah this last two years have been a blur <laughs> it's hard to remember which what yeah. was what <laughs> what's a good example of a game that surprised us with how far away or how close to release it was. I think actually a good example of a game that came out faster than people thought it would is Death Stranding. Like Death Stranding began development at the beginning of 2016. Like Hideo Kojima was still working on Metal Gear Solid 5 up until the end of 2015. Uh, and then made the partnership with Sony at the beginning of 2016, showed a trailer at E3 2016 that is one-to-one in the final game uh, after, you know, four months of development. Uh, and then that game came out three and a half years after it was announced, which it was crazy to me. Like, so I, all of my friends were saying that that game wasn't going to come out until, 
you know, 2021, 2022, which at the time was years off. Uh, and that game came out, and I, I really liked it. I know that a lot of people didn't, but that was a good. That was an example of if you don't like Death Stranding, it's because it's not for you. And I get that, but very few people would have said that this is a lazy or uninteresting or poorly functional game. Yeah, I think probably the effect those trailers had. I'm just you know thinking back to my own reasons why I thought it was going to be like a you know a ten year development cycle was probably because of how obscure and new the gameplay is it didn't actually feel like there was a lot of gameplay in the trailers which now that Mm -hmm. you've played the game and you go back at it like oh actually no yeah they were they were playing the game you know they were it just didn't look like any game you had seen before it's it's a weird one yeah and i think that gave the impression that they're still experimenting when in actuality they knew what they were doing and they had done what they needed to do and that's probably why it felt like it came out before we all thought it was going mm-hmm. to, I suppose. I actually have a theory that Hideo Kojima had the idea for Death Stranding in, like, 2006 and said to Konami, hey, I want to make this game, and they said, no, you have to make another Metal Gear Solid game. So as soon as he couldn't make a Metal Gear Solid game, he's like, I know exactly what I want to do. It's very, very possible. I mean, we know for years he wanted to break away a bit from Metal Gear, and, you know, he had a couple of chances, and, you know, Boktai or whatever, um, but not not as many as he would have liked. I wouldn't that wouldn't surprise me. I got to, I got to imagine there's a lot of game developers like that. Like for example, the um, the Yakuza guy whose name's escaping me. I, I wouldn't be shocked if other than you know good pay and all that kind of stuff. Um, his jump to NetEase was just an ability to not do Yakuza for for another year and try something a bit different. Given he's obviously got a bit of uh, his, his previous games are all quite different, like Monkey Ball and stuff, nothing like Yakuza. So I imagine he's got quite a creative um, and varied, you know, set of, of uh, ideas in his, in his head that Sega maybe weren't willing to let him do. But um, we'll find out, I guess, in And F-Zero <laughs> as well. Nagoshi was a very talented developer, so definitely agree with you there. NetEase, Cross Nintendo, F-Zero, whatever, X, 2023. Calling it now. <laughs> Probably not, but it'd be cool. <laughs> Like, F-Zero fans, like, are the ultimate, like, begging for scraps at this point. Like, people say that Zelda games come out all the time, and they do, and Mario games come out all the time, but Metroid doesn't get as much love. But at least, like, at least Metroid's not Star Fox, and at least Star Fox is not F-Zero. And at least none of them are Wave Race. R.O.P. <laughs> Wave Race. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. So I guess the next sort of stage where we start to get some concrete info where we can figure out if a game is good or not is when media start to get their hands on, whether that's at trade shows like E3, PAX, etc., or they're given private showings, or you know you can download them uh, sometimes, and they, they write up their hands-on impressions or previews. I guess sometimes it's a bit hard in the fantasy critic sense to rely on those because games get you know taken up well before them. But from when there is a chance, I think indies are usually a good example here where you can read some previews, you can read some impressions. Do you have like a method to the madness in how you pass through the uh, all the various opinions from different sites to figure out, okay, this is a game worth, you know, either drafting in Fantasy Critic or if you're not playing the game, putting, you know, 10 bucks down on a pre-order at uh, GameStop or EB Games if, uh, if that's the kind of thing you like to do. Here's my question on previews, because my answer my answer is that I actually don't put a whole ton of faith in them, 
And I think that's because how often do you read a game preview that says this game is just not very good? Like, I feel like previews are almost always optimistic about the game that they're previewing. And I, that might tie into access and uh, and the scenario, the, the way that uh, the scenario that the game is presented in. And maybe they only have a limited amount of time to play it or something like that. But if you never read a bad preview, maybe I'm wrong on that. Maybe people, maybe you two will say you definitely see games get previewed that preview badly. But it makes me hesitant to trust a good preview on the other side of it. I guess from my perspective, I agree with you in that the previews from major outlets definitely fit in that category, that they're generally either overly optimistic or generally positive. Like, when they are critical, it's generally sort of very subtle, not not heavy criticism. So it, it definitely feels like a ske- it's skewed towards that direction. I'd, I'd argue that the previews you read on the inter- sort of from enthusiasts on forums or Twitter, from people that go to your trade shows, or not even trade shows, things like packs or the like, and there's demos of games that those can those can be quite honest. And I've definitely read reviews that are quite critical of how games run from from those sources. But to your point, those aren't your large outlet previews. Those aren't the previews that are going to get a lot of readership, or you might not necessarily find unless you're seeking it out so i agree with you in previews that i think they can be useful into into giving you a hint towards the quality of the game when it releases but it it, there's potential pitfalls that it's going to be a very skewed view that of a viewer that someone a writer for let's say an ign or kataka the like that previews a game and is very positive of it is not necessarily going to be as positive when they have to review that game when it releases. Like there could be all these issues that were hidden or maybe they weren't allowed to see particular parts or maybe, I don't know, if we're going to be really cynical, maybe the outlet was paid to do a good preview. Who knows? But there's all those elements there depending on how cynical we yeah, want to Yeah, and you, like, I think that there is some amount of that where they, they want that good relationship with that publisher. The preview is, uh, is different than the review. And more to the point of the preview being different than the review. I I think that people are just more willing to give the game a benefit of a doubt if it's not for sale yet. It feels even worse to be negative in a preview than it does in a review. Because at a re- at time of review, it's like, okay, you're selling this. It is what it is. Whereas the preview, you're kind of... You're willing to overlook a bit more because the game's not done yet. Um, so that's why I think that they can lean positive. Yeah, I mean... I I, you're, I agree with both of you, and I can sort of, I mean, from my own experience back when I did, you know, amateur game journalism and went to 1E3, I remember, I think it was Dragon Quest Builders, probably, uh, or Builders 2, but I think it was Builders 1, I played uh, at the Square booth, uh, and it was just incredibly laggy, uh, like in terms of my inputs to the character doing anything. But when I wrote the preview, I didn't spend a lot of time Talking about that, I mentioned it uh, up front, but I gave them the benefit of the doubt that either the Bluetooth signal on the on the you know PS4 controller was was probably stuffing up because of um, all the interference. Alternatively, it was just a build of the game that wasn't you know finalized, and hopefully by launch they were going to fix it. So instead, focused in on the more positive elements of you know like the building is cool and it's like Minecraft with a bit more structure and blah blah blah. And I can certainly see how that probably you know most 
uh, reviewers do it. And, and I think you hit the nail on the head about the, the relationships, not only from a professional sense, you know, IGN wants to keep a positive relationship with Square Enix, but even a personal sense, because uh, it, it's a small industry, even though it's a global industry, it feels like people know each other. And again, as I sort of touched on at the start, people move around a lot between various, uh, you know, sides of the coin, you know, sometimes, yeah, a reviewer one year or a journalist one year is a PR agent the next. So being too harsh on a on a pre-build of a game is probably a misstep you don't want to make uh, yeah. if you're trying to keep those relationships. And I don't even think you have to be, the more I think about it, I don't even think you have to be too cynical to, to imagine the game uh, journalist covering uh, this indie game that they played and man, this game was, it just didn't show well at all at this trade show um and are you really gonna write the scathing preview it just feels mean whereas if they put it for sale all right well now it's time or i'm not gonna pull my punches anymore now you're selling it but to to write a scathing preview i just i have a hard time imagining someone feeling good about writing that yeah it's the kind of thing you almost talk to them if it's like particularly an indie game you might say that like hey just FYI I thought this was good and this was bad if you're looking for feedback yeah. um, but then yeah publicly you're not going to do it like we're lucky enough to have a PAX here in Melbourne which uh, we go to well Brendan and I go to most years obviously that hasn't been for the last couple of years uh, and I certainly come away talking more about the positive games and almost never talking to my friends about the ones I had a bad experience because just there's almost just no value in it sure I it's yeah, I um, say, check out Unpacking, because it's going to be good. And then, thankfully, it was good, because I drafted on Fantasy Critic. But <laughs> that kind of stuff. <laughs> I actually went to my first ever uh, game convention last year. There was a show, this very small show, in New York City that I went to. Um, and it was mo- it was all indie games. And there were a few that were good. But to be honest, there were a bunch that I was like, wow, this game is really not good at all and some of them were ways off from being released but i remember talking to some of the developers and them and i asked them like when is this uh when is this going to come out do you think and they were like oh like maybe next month and i was like oh oh okay all right (laughs) um because like it just didn't seem anywhere near ready to uh to put out but if i was a if i was going there with the intention of writing previews for my site I would have felt bad slamming those games because they were, like, developed by two people. Yeah, it's a real... Like, I mean, it's also interesting, though, because then you say, that's developed by two people, then you, like, look at Hollow Knight, and you're like, but that's also developed by two people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know, Brendan, you've obviously similar... You've done some previews, like, packs and stuff. I don't know, do you have any thought process when you were writing or back in another castle days or anything like that? I'd argue, I agree with the both of you, and I think there was, when I was writing impressions and the like of PAX, which I did for two years, there's, thinking about it retrospectively, I, I would say there was somewhat of an unconscious bias going on in that at an event like PAX, there's both demos of your AAA games and your demos of indie games, and I think you're definitely a bit more forgiving for those indie games and let's say when I was previewing, when I did a demo of, um, oh, what's that, um, Quantic Dream game that came out the other year with the robots. Detroit, um, Detroit Become Human? Yeah, Detroit Become Human. Like, let's say I was pre- I did a demo of Detroit Become Human, and then I went and played a demo of 
let's say random indie game that I've seen at PAX a few times, and I'm going to be more, I'll, I'll be more forgiving of that indie game and like the potential of it if it when it finally releases when I'm writing about it than Detroit Become Human when. I was somewhat interested in it when I played the demo, but I had a lot of criticisms about how it controlled with the um, DualShock controller, which I probably wouldn't pick it up. I wouldn't have probably criticised the controls of an indie game, for example. So I think there are there's those biases at play that you expect a particular level of polish and finish to a multi-million dollar game than one that's developed by two or three people on a very small budget. No, I, I agree, and... Probably one other aspect, just from my, again, very brief amateur experience in previewing stuff, is how, like, when you go to, like, an E3 or something, how many demos are actually, like, you don't actually play. Like, they just, they, like, there's a developer or a um, a publisher, you know, PR rep playing the game in front of you, and then people write their previews of that, which, until I went to those shows and saw that's, what a gameplay demo was for some, usually the bigger games, obviously not so much indies. Uh, like a, I remember like for, it was mafia three, I think it was. And it's like, yeah, people just lined up for like two hours to get into a effectively a mini cinema and watch a guy play mafia three for like 10 minutes. Uh, and then would go and write an article about that and call it a preview. And I, I remember going back, just trying to see who called it like a, a hands-off impression versus who called it a, hands-on and it was a real mixed bag like some people were very good and they explained their interaction with the game was effectively non-existent and and others didn't <laughs> so they almost wrote it like a like a the same as a, a you know going to a booth and playing a game themselves and their own first-hand experience uh, and i think that also tainted me a little bit in terms of not i won't say trusting previews but knowing how much salt i need to add <laughs> to the to the previews um uh, when assuming uh, a game is going to be good or bad, and that you know that might dovetail into uh, one of our either now or later topics about uh, I guess games that I'm not going to say are bad, but underperform to their expectation. Uh, so that could be a game everyone thinks is going to get a ten, you know, Metacritic critic or Open Critic score of ninety five, and then gets eighty five or even you know seventies. And there are a couple of high-profile examples. We've said Cyberpunk 27.7 a few times, and that's one I think still fresh in most people's memory. I think No Man's Sky, despite its turnaround story, was a big one as well. Uh, and I'm sure through history there's been a bunch. Uh, I guess from those experiences, is there anything you guys have picked up on that you go, oh, this is, we could have figured this out sooner. Like this is something that was maybe suspicious in hindsight or... Uh, we just overlooked that uh, as, a, as a general gaming audience, I should say, that going forward, we might be a bit more in tune to saying, okay, this might not be that great, or this might be um, less, not as good as we think it, uh, you know, the, the general crowd seems to think it might be. I, again, for me, Cyberpunk was the fact that so many demos at E3s and stuff, glowing, you know, feedback, but it was all, it was all hands off, <laughs> which means the developers and stuff knew what they were showing you cyberpunk is the one that really surprised me because if i think about um battlefield 2042 that started to get some attention before uh before release that it was not functioning well that game had serious technical problems and some questionable design decisions um no man's sky had the 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 question that loomed over it the entire time was 
what do you do in this game? What is the point of <laughs> No Man's Sky that no one could seem to answer? But Cyberpunk is the one that, to me, as a gamer, I think the lesson of Cyberpunk is don't pre-order games. <laughs> is don't take any don't don't take it for granted. That, like even if it's a rock solid developer, eventually every great developer is gonna put out a stinker, and you don't know which one it's gonna be. On the flip side, I think the fantasy critic lesson to take from Cyberpunk is nothing. It's almost like if your car gets wrecked by a boulder, you don't go out and buy boulder insurance. You say, wow, <laughs> that is probably not going to happen again. I don't think there will be another time, and anytime soon, where the consensus number one or number two pick of the whole year in fantasy critic comes out and gets a 76. I don't see it. Like, if the like the, the, the lesson, I guess, if we're going to say to take a lesson from Cyberpunk, it would be don't take Elden Ring. Because, like, everybody loved everything that CD Projekt Red had done so far. Everybody loves all the games FromSoft's done so far. But you're not going to you're not gonna do that. You're, you're going to take Elden Ring. You're going to get excited about Elden Ring. Now, that at least has the... One thing in its favor is that people have played it. That had that game in a beta test that people were very happy with. But uh, Cyberpunk's just such a weird case to me. Yeah, Brendan, as someone who drafted Cyberpunk in our fantasy critic league, and also bought Cyberpunk, I don't know if you pre-ordered, but I know you grabbed it on I did. PC. You did pre-order. I pre-ordered <laughs> it on PC, which I think is the most idiotic thing someone can do. But yes, I did. Uh, yeah, what, uh, what about you? Is there anything you look at, say, a case like that, and you're like, Man, I could have picked up on this earlier that this I should have been a bit more cautious. Um, in either a fantasy critic sense or a not pre-ordering the game next time sense. <laughs> well, I th- as the saying goes, it's always a lot easier in hindsight to pick up warning signs. But if you're critically to assess it retrospectively, I'd say it's twofold. Firstly, the fact that it constantly kept on getting delayed, there was delays upon delays upon delays, that that would be a bit of a warning sign together with the fact that as you said there wasn't really ever any hand-on previews it was all oh here's some gameplay footage that's released by cd project red or oh, here's some here's a new trailer that looks quite flashy but is it actually is any of this gameplay and and i think the second point which flows on from that is well what is this actually running on all, all the preview footage all the hands-off demos let's call them that were all run off pc they never they never showed any of the PS4 or Xbox One footage, which, as the release came closer and closer, there were some people out there that the the warning signs were, I guess, the, the sirens were going for them. They were a bit sceptical of, well, there's been all these delays. We haven't seen any footage of the console release of this game. Like, is it actually going to hold up? And as we found out when it did release, it, it did not. There was a lot of criticisms, particularly of how it ran on consoles that, weren't necessarily reflected on the PC release. And I think the other part of it is probably goes to the previous discussion we had on critics in that those first reviews released for Cyberpunk did hit the expectation that we thought it was going to get. Like, they were all reviews in the 80s or 90s to begin with. There was a lot, quite a lot of 9 out of 10s it got from those outlets that got the reviews out quite quickly. But then you over the next week after release, you had all the other outlets that, the reviewers there probably had the thought of, oh, I actually want to 
finish the game and then put the reviewer out or putting more time in than some of the others and you had those more critical reviews of Cyberpunk and that very much altered the score. So I agree with Steve in that there were definitely warning signs there, but I don't think you can kind of take it as a lesson of, oh, you've got to be very careful about a particular type of game because it's not going to live up to the expectation. I think Cyberpunk was a, it was the lightning in the bottle for how it was received in the end. And it, it goes to show like the hype it had before was somewhat unprecedented as well for in reality, how little we actually saw of the game. Now, in the case of in, for Cyberpunk, I actually don't know the way the review embargo worked. Did they only give pre-release copies of the PC version? And do we think that's why it reviewed well at the beginning, and then once the console review started coming in, then the score dropped? Because I know the game, really, at the, at the launch, it really only functioned at all on a top-end PC. And if you were on a base PS4 or a base Xbox One, just don't bother. Yes, exactly. I, I I do believe that all the review copies were for PC. Okay, so that would explain why why it trailed off. Because like my thought was, if they had put out everything, putting together a good review of I really enjoyed Cyberpunk would take a while. Putting together a review of this game doesn't run on my console shouldn't take that long. So that's why, I, other than the different in differences in embargo, the, the, the way that the reviews changed over time was surprising to me. But I have a different game to talk about um, that I think illustrates a lot of these warning signs, and I'm curious what you two think about it. Because there's a game that's coming out this year that, from a developer with a track record of buggy games um, that we've seen no gameplay of, uh, (laughs) that is a big open-world game in a new franchise. Mm -hmm. And that game's Starfield. How do we feel Mm. about Starfield? Because that absolutely has the warning signs. Well, I have drafted it, and I purely drafted it on the fact that I agree with your warning signs, but if we look at the performance of Bethesda open-world games, even the ones that arguably released broken on on the consoles they launched on, they have always somewhat reviewed well and been received well, despite those those, um, technological issues that they have aside. Really, the only game they've released in one of their open-world franchises that hasn't done well recently is fallout 76 which is the so most recent perhaps, game they put out but of course the fact that that game was multiplayer can't be ignored is that that was the it's easy to say that the game was that non-functional because they shoehorned in the multiplayer and they haven't said anything about starfield being multiplayer right i know they haven't so. i believe the assumption is that starfield is a single player rpg yeah, I think Starfield is such a... It's probably one of the... High, like, Let's say, pretend we're playing a game where instead of just trying to get high-reviewing games, you actually have to pinpoint the score it's going to get on Open Critic, and that was the, the goal. This would be one of the hardest, yes. I think, to pick. Mm-hmm. Um, would you be because stunned I've... if that game got a 65? Would you be stunned? Stunned is probably not the right word. I'd be surprised. I don't think it's going to get that low, but I wouldn't be like... Conversely, you know, would you be whoa, stunned if it yeah. got a 95? I, I think I would, actually. Yeah, okay, so maybe that, me, maybe, too, yeah. maybe that range is too big, but I do. Mm-hmm. I honestly do think that that's its range. That's, it could go in. That's it could, you the, might be That's might the be Fallout right. 76 to Skyrim range. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. It's The thing is, it's got like three or four like big question marks. As you said, Fallout 76 was 
reviewed bad, but it's a multiplayer game and like everyone gets one bad game, right? Like it's it's not a, a pattern yet. Um, then there's the Xbox Microsoft factor. Ha- this is how is that playing into this at all? Is it a, is it happening? Is there any impact or is there none? It's still a fairly fresh purchase, like only closed last year. Um, but like you would, you know, there's a lot of good faith in in Phil and his team. Would they allow it to release in a in a bad state? It's very hard to to sort of to say. And then of course, I think there's just the tolerance for bugs. I think has gone down. I think the general public and even reviewers are less tolerant to glitches and bugs in 2022 than they were in 2011. I guess that's when. Is that when Skyrim came out? I think. 11, yeah, 11, I, 11? I, I think um, you're probably right, considering how we treated Skyrim versus Fallout 3 versus Fallout 4 or 76 or what's another good example? Mass Effect Andromeda. Yeah, I feel like back in the day, we expected to be a, there's some some bugs. And now, I, I almost wonder if it's just like this. I, I know there's a, at least among my friendship group, I don't know how. Uh, broadly felt this sentiment is but there is this frustration of people don't like day one patches they're sick of like games coming out quote-unquote broken and i feel like that's maybe turned up the heat on uh glitchy games uh quite a bit Uh, i guess you know another way of putting it is people are sick of being you know punished for being an early adopter slash a big supporter of a company uh, and then letting you know these people who pick it up for you know 10 bucks on steam four years later uh get the best experience and, and for the lowest price uh so I, I reckon to that extent all those factors combined uh but then obviously just with the fact that i mean they are a good team right and they haven't had as far as i'm aware massive you know turnover or anything like that obviously you know todd howard love him i hate him has is a quality developer he's got a proven track record mm. so you're right it could easily blow it out of the park be a 95 game of the year contender and and be up there on the game awards with you know god of war zelda and elden ring would be the and horizon probably the top you know four i'd say for this year so far i think that there's definitely some uh some no man's sky to to starfield though in that does anyone know what the core gameplay loop of starfield is going to be (laughs) nope (laughs) no We're all assuming it's, you know, Fallout or Skyrim in space, basically, or Elder Scrolls, I should say, but that could be completely wrong. <laughs> I would actually be really interested to see if they can successfully make an open-world Bethesda game that downplays combat. That'd be good. Mm. That'd be very good, because all, all you're right, all the open-world games, like, combat is an essential part of it. Can they make non-violent exploration a, a big a, the the primary mechanic and it's not to say i don't like first person shooters i do um but that would be a different thing there's not that many games that control like first or third person shooters that don't play like them like death stranding is kind of the exception that proves the rule we kind of all expected that to be a third person shooter at the end of the day and it really isn't well i haven't played them and i know these aren't bethesda games because they were made before but could you do that in the original two Fallout games, like the pre-Bethesda ones? Like, I know because obviously Fallout has the whole, you know, different attributes and stats and you can sort of talk your way out of a lot of stuff. But could you, like, could you talk your way out of everything in those games? I honestly don't know. I haven't watched enough. I don't know either. To... New Vegas yeah. has the is the best of the modern Fallouts is the best example of 
you can talk your way out of situations. Yeah, because I think that would be really good. And I think, you know, even stuff like Undertale has shown having, uh, I guess, a non-aggressive option is quite an interesting concept that people will, you know, adapt to. And then, of course, you can shoot stuff. I remember, like, whether your your dream comes true or that wish comes true that uh, there is an option to not do any combat, I guarantee you there is still going to be an option to do combat. Um, like, yeah, you're going to be able I'm to sure. shoot something. Like, there was, already, <laughs> there was definitely a cool gun in that trailer that they showed. But an example that I can think of a game of a game that I think at least disappointed people by being a bit too standard was Watch Dogs. The original Watch Dogs, like, is, ooh, is it going to be some neat hacking game? Uh, it's a third-person shooter with a, a lot of context-sensitive use buttons. Yeah, it's like, a, it's like the Conker's Bad Fur Day of... <laughs> hacking games or or shooter games lots of context sensitive <laughs> yeah you're right watchdogs because everyone was like this is going to be like the next big assassin's creed and it, it was but it was in the sense that like it's just another open world game versus i think the original assassin's creed felt like uh quite fresh at the time off the back of uh, a generation of you know splinter cells and prince mm-hmm. of persia i suppose yeah Whereas if we take an even older example, let look at Metroid Prime when that first was announced as a first-person shooter. That that had a lot of connotations there. The people thought, "Oh, what are they doing to Metroid? Is it going to be a like? Will it be like a Halo or GoldenEye or like a traditional first-person shooter?" And well, we all know it wasn't. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, you have a cannon. Yes, you shoot things, but you wouldn't call that game a first-person shooter. It it very much fits in that adventure genre exploration yeah totally agree i think the the only one that really did push into that halo category is metroid prime 3 i think there's a lot of halo in metroid prime 3 but i don't even consider that a negative i i like metroid prime 3 the real question is how do you feel about federation force or is that i actually never played it I've, I've actually i think i played a demo of metroid prime pinball so i so federation force is the only metroid game i've played exactly none of i don't know if that's a that's fair or not i don't know like I, i've played like five well the thing is like okay. <laughs> it's, it's how many people were crying out for first like how many people were wanted to uh to get three friends together to play triforce heroes and then of yeah, that no. how many people would wanted to play get three get three or four friends together to play federation force like it's just a tall order to get three copies of a game on a 3ds uh, and have all your friends with their... Th- it's I don't know. It was that's a weird game. Yeah. So like, it was a very very weird strange decision making behind Federation Force. No, I'm the way I have always said it. This is really a tangent because uh, that Federation Force had a really poor response, uh, obviously, but in a way that Metroid Prime Pinball didn't, because Metroid Prime Pinball came out in between Metroid Prime Two and Three when Zero Mission had just come out, and it's like oh. This is just some fun little bonus. But when you announce Federation Force five years after Other M and there's been nothing else, people are going to get mad at that. Yeah, and, and you had, um, even though I think it's not like super loved, but I think more well-received than um, a lot of games, uh, Hunters on DS as well. So you had your option. You had your, yeah. your quote-unquote prime game yep. um, and then just pinball. The, the, the <laughs> way I, I've said this before, uh, not on podcasts, but in 2015 to circle back to bethesda actually bethesda was really hyping up some big announcement leading up to e3 2015 and at 
that E3, they announced Fallout 4 and Fallout Shelter. And in the context of Fallout 4, Fallout Shelter was like, oh, okay, here's some fun phone game. Imagine they had just announced Fallout Shelter. The, it would People would have hated on that game so, so much, even if it was the same exact game that it was, but announced in the context of, here's some fun thing alongside Fallout 4. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'd speculate, and it's, I don't know, like, I'm sure someone can confirm or deny it, but the Metroid Prime 4 announcement um, JPEG was probably only, like, the thing that tipped that into happening versus not happening at A3 was Metroid Samus Returns. And they're like, we need to announce Metroid mm-hmm. Prime 4, otherwise Samus Returns is going to fail because everyone's going to be like, what's this BS putting a Metroid game on 3DS when we have the Switch? Like, what what are you doing? Yeah, Nintendo, I think there's, I think there's absolutely yeah. uh, a lot of merit to that. Now, there's a... Uh, neither of these games sold well, but Samus Returns, everyone agrees, is far better than uh, Federation Force. So I think it would have been better received regardless, but I think you're right that that is why they put uh, that that logo uh, in that E3 presentation. Uh, so I'm going to be a bit controversial to you guys saying there's, there's no lesson learned, or maybe a not applicable lesson learned to the, the cyberpunk and other similar scenarios. Because I have developed a rule that I use for Fantasy Critic and just general game picking it's probably a useless rule because i think it's very subjective but i'm gonna i'm gonna talk you through it and tell me if you think it makes sense but it's called the is this too good to be real sniff test basically uh because i think that in hindsight applies to a lot of the flops over my you know gaming hobby life i suppose versus the stuff that uh has met expectations even if they were high expectations so uh with say elden ring right is this too good to be true? Uh, no, <laughs> it's probably not, right? Like, it looks what you can expect from Fron Software, which is a really high-quality, you know, uh, dark, hard RPG, action RPG. Nothing about it seems out of the realm of, of possibility, whereas in hindsight, you know, Cyberpunk, the graphics that you were sort of touching on, Brendan, could this run on PS4 or, or Xbox? There were certainly people asking that question, at the time, and then turns out the answer was no. Or say No Man's Sky, a lot of people are like, man, you're going to be able to go everywhere and do all these cool things and blah, blah, blah. And I think that's not so much the developer's fault, but the fans overhyped what they thought was going to happen in that game. And in reality, it was probably too much to expect from the small team that is, uh, oh, I'm escaping it, Sean Murray's team, but I forget what they're Hello called. Hello Games. Yes, yes, that's it. And another very old example but i remember uh burnt me in terms of getting really excited for it and then being mostly disappointed was was sport where the concept for that was just wild in terms of you know having these races that you create and then they evolve and breed and sort of creating this you know space like ecosystem kind of thing and that was generally considered, you know, disappointing. Um, there it has its fans, but even at the time, a lot of people uh, bought it and reviewers gave it much uh, lower reviews than people were, were pegging it for. Uh, and it probably didn't pass the, was this, you know, too good to be true test? Because, yeah, probably what, what um, Will Wright was, you know, pitching and then obviously the fans maybe over-exaggerated in their minds was beyond what was achievable at that point in time maybe might be a bit more believable today but uh back then certainly wasn't so that's kind of i mean again it's such a subjective rule you probably can't actually take it and reply i think what i want to what i want to ask there 
is for some I'm going to list a couple 2022 games and tell you tell me which way you go on these because I think you can make the argument for these games. So the first one is Starfield, which we already talked about. But which way do you go on Starfield? I think Starfield's going to be good. I don't think it'll be uh a 90 though. I think it's it's a high mid to high 80 sort of game. I think it'll have a good a good number of fans is my my gut feel. Okay. I think it up until a week ago, it would have been really easy to argue that Pokemon Legends Arceus is too good to be true. Yep, and I was in that camp. I, I was guessing that would be a mid-70s best game. Yeah, I, I, to be fair, I'm very tuned into Pokemon because it's one of my like you know top uh, franchises. So I feel like I sort of knew what to expect like in, in, a, in a sense. So maybe that changes things a bit for me there. To follow up on your Starfield assessment, my question would be, what do you base that on that you think it's going to be a mid-80s? Is it is it purely based on how Bethesda RPGs in the past have performed or from the trailer you saw? Or what, what sort of... What, why do you... Or is it just a gut feeling? What, what? Uh, it's a, well, I'm going to put it to three things. One, I think they have the capability to do a great game. Like, I don't think it's a situation where they don't have that skill set. It's almost kind of like Platinum games, right? Where Platinum, we know, can put out a 10 out of 10, but they can also put out a 6, and they flop between them quite regularly. But it's not like a scenario where the studio's gone downhill and probably can't produce a a quality game anymore, full stop. Uh, Two, I kind of get the feeling that Starfield feels a bit... Like, it feels like there's a bit more passion behind the project in terms of, like, I, I imagine that there's a, quite a number of people there who've had the concept for Starfield in their mind for a while, and it's probably been on the back burner for a long time before it went to full production, versus, uh, not to say these teams probably weren't passionate, but I imagine stuff like a Fallout 76 and a Fallout 4 were a bit more like, we need to put something out that's going to keep generating money, and people like Fallout, so... Let's keep doing that while we tinker with the Starfield concept, or at least until technology gets us to the point where we think we can execute in our vision to some extent. That's sort of the stuff that's driving me towards the higher end versus the, the lower end. Uh, but obviously some of that's like maybe wishful thinking as well versus being cynical, which is yeah <laughs> probably where I land on a lot of things. Or I could be wrong. It'll be a buggy mess and it'll get... Yes. Yeah, so, what what would you say is a example of a game this year that you would you would apply that rule to that you're not picking it or you're going to counterpick this game because it is too good to be true? That's a great question. I think I think it's a hard, not a hard rule. I think it's probably a, a growingly useless rule because in <laughs> some respects um, things are more and more possible with each year, and obviously we're still in that. Uh, sweet spot of new consoles where you would like to assume that people haven't fully maxed out the PS5 or the Series X. Oh, for sure. Yet. Yeah. So there's a lot of upside. But like, yeah, if we were to take an example from last year, if we were to apply your rule, well, I applied it in Fantasy Critic to Kenner Bridge of Spirits as my counterpick because my assumption there was, well, like, it looks good. It looks really pretty from what we saw from trailers and previews but it was a developer who had never produced a game before and there were were some delays there so i took the educated guess of well maybe this won't be as good as people think it was but i was wrong they were right it was as good as people thought it was going to be it was a pretty well-received game Mm. so Mm. 
it's an interesting dynamic, I think. So I'm just having a look, sorry, I just opened up Fantasy Critic. There's a couple of games I look at and I go, oh, these will probably, like, obviously the people that have drafted them in our league have some reason to think they'll be good, uh, but I'm not as convinced. Someone this week drafted Pellworld, and that's probably a big one where, uh, I don't know, just for people who don't know what Pellworld is, it's that weird, like, it's Pokemon, but with guns. <laughs> um, oh, I can't remember yeah. where that first trailer was. Yeah, uh-huh. Uh, and they just had a trailer this last week, which I think is what spurred this person to draft it. And it looks pretty nice, and it's, uh, you know, at face value, there's a bit of hype behind it. Like, it's going to be weird, but it's going to be like this Pokemon sort of killer but I don't know if they just mean that because they're shooting Pokemon creatures or if they actually think it'll outperform. But there is some excitement behind it. But I kind of look at the previous game this team did, which I think is Craftopia. I look at just the snippets that, like, the really focused scenes they're showing in those you know, most recent trailer. And I think they're being very careful in, in showing specific things. And I think the world they have will end up being... It probably won't be that dissimilar to Legends Arceus, but I think it won't have quite the same positive reception because A, I think the monsters might just not be as well designed as Pokemon tend to be, and B, I think, I don't know, the, there'll be a bit of jank that you can't pick up on until you get your hands on it, which I find is often the case with... Um, like I think Balan Wonderworld actually is a, a pretty decent example where it kind of didn't look that bad. It looked like a, you know like a fun 2d pla- sorry 3d platformer but once you played the demo you're like oh yep there's the jank that uh <laughs> that is going to kill this game 100 percent when um when reviews come out and so to me that's an example where i'm like while this is promising a pretty ambitious game and in theory could exceed expectations and get 90 i wouldn't pick it and i would maybe counter pick it if i hadn't already used my two counter picks on uh, what I do, Metroid Prime 4 and Mario Kart Unannounced, which is for other reasons, because I think those will be good, but I don't think they're coming out. <laughs> but in terms of big games, I can't look at like a God of War, a Horizon, an Elden Ring. There's not much there that makes me go, this is unfeasible. And the stuff I have some skepticism on, like a Stalker or a Dying Light, come more from, I guess just it's not that they can't do it it's more that i just don't think they will like i think you know dying light 2 it could review incredibly well but I, my gut feel is it'll it'll sort of be in a similar review position to the to the original game which was good but not like you know 10 out of 10 amazing by any stretch of the imagination and stalker the recent delay and all the nft experimentation oh are they doing nfts in stalker they were going to, then they didn't. Okay. There was like a back and forth. Uh, I think they've landed on no, but I think I, don't know, I get skip if you're thinking about it. Yeah. It makes me wonder, uh-huh. like, yeah, what absolutely. else are you doing? <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, as I said, it might be. A, it's, it's probably a very useless rule because I think as I said, more and more things are more possible than they ever have been. Mm. But it is a question I now ask myself with anything here. Uh, another one that's not drafted in in any of my leagues, but. I'm kind of keeping an eye on it because I think it could be fun. Is that Doke V or whatever it is by the Pearl Abyss? The God, what's the game they're famous for? That M- Crimson Desert, is it? Or something like that? That really pretty MMO. I think, you know, similarly, this game looks pretty. It looks amazing at the Game Awards. And uh, I think it was at the Jeff Keighley's Summer Game Fest last year. They, they showed it off. But again, I look at 
Crimson Desert, and that looked beautiful, and then also was just an okay, you know, MMO. Um, certainly not even close to like a Final Fantasy uh, 14 or anything to that imagination um, in terms of quality. So I think similarly, this could end up being like a, oh yeah, it's very cute, very colorful, great graphics, but a gameplay loop's not quite there when, when they launch it, but we'll see. Yeah. I feel like that we're falling back into the trap of, well, the be- the best rule of thumb is, well, what's the track record of yeah. the developer? That, that, yeah, that is the, my best advice is to trust track record of the developer and uh, tr- trust the wisdom of the crowd. Like if you're playing, if we're talking specifically fantasy critic, it's not too often that everyone drafting on fantasy critic is wrong, which is why I say like, don't go out and buy Boulder insurance for cyberpunk. The games that are the highest rated are either not going to come out, which you can survive if you allow drops or they're going to be good. Like I just can't see Elden Ring Horizon Forbidden West, God of War Ragnarok, Breath of the Wild 2, Grand Turismo 7, those are your top five. Assuming those games come out, they're going to be good. While you're talking about it, it's actually just to, just to help, I mean, I need to plug your site, but if anyone's listening to this and isn't interested in playing Fantasy Critic, but you should still you should still go to the site because your games list with the um, what you call the hype factor, which mm-hmm. kind of reflects how many people have drafted in their league, uh, it's just an interesting statistic <laughs> just to see like the vibe check on um, yeah all these games. Uh, hype factor, It's it comes with a caveat of these are the games that people are, think are going to score well this year um, as opposed to just be good in general. Like if Breath of the Wild 2, if they, if they announce it comes out January 2nd, 2023, that is instantly a bad fantasy critic game because it doesn't come out in 2022, even though that's only, you know, two days away from uh, being a great 2022 game. Hmm. So this is uh, a game that's highly rated on fantasy critic is the most likely to come out this year and the most likely to do well put together. Yeah, no, uh, that's that's a good caveat. But um, either way, I just find it. Like, it's absolutely. Really yeah, fascinating. it's... it's um, it's something I absolutely find uh, interesting. When she, once you have a lot of people on the site, they're like the the patterns emerge, uh, and you can see what what people value in um, when they're drafting their games. For sure. Well, with that said, I mean, unless there's any other hot tips for how people can sort of pick and and choose what games they think are going to be good or bad whether it's for fantasy critic or just trying to budget your, your hard-earned dollars and time throughout the year. I do have one tip that I, I've said um, I've said this before uh, on some other podcasts, actually, but games that often review well are niche games that are very respected in their niche. Draft the excellent racing game, even if you don't like racing games. Draft the best flight simulator that has ever been released, even if there's no way you're ever going to play a flight, simu- flight simulator. Like, those games review really well. And I'm, I'm, obviously, I'm talking about Forza, I'm talking about uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator. I have confidence in Grand Turismo 7, even though they've been trending down, they still get good reviews, and I think that this one's going to be the one to turn, the, to turn things around. But uh, th- those, are, those are excellent games uh, to, to pick up. 
it reminds me, Zach, of our league that every year there is someone who drafts fantasy football manager. Football or what manager. is it? Football manager. It's, yeah, the yeah, yeah. Game. it's good every year. Um, F1 is the other one. Yeah, no, nah, and I think if we look at Open Critic, and I, I think um, anyone that watches Kyle Bossman will know what I'm about to talk about. Like Buster Follows uh-huh. is also a very funny, funny example of a game, like a visual novel that scored one of the highest scores of all of 2021. That one is strange to me. I, all I know from that game is the Kyle Bossman video, but I agree with him from, from if for those that have seen any of Buster Fellows, it doesn't even look like that good of a visual novel, truthfully. I'm surprised that it got the score that it did. No, it's almost just because of the, the lack of reviews combined. Yeah. And if you are playing Fancy Critic, my hot, my hot tip, uh, if you're looking for visual novel stuff... Uh, prior guest on the show matt sainsbury's website digitally downloaded he does almost every visual novel or very japanese well, i'm just gonna say it very weeb game uh, and and his reviews often leading indicators on how they will review amongst that niche i will say uh and he often you can follow his twitter and be like oh he's talking about this random visual novel uh do i pick it up is it worth it um uh and he's, he's had a good track record of being in line with uh with the with the crowd so uh yeah i agree going for niches and if you can find some like good sources for those niches sure. like yeah, yeah. Your game reviewers that do all the racing games or sports games or whatever uh follow them on twitter <laughs> and see what they're what they're saying in their tweets in the like week before launch if there's any like subtweeting you know carefully skirting embargoes <laughs> uh, but anyway with that i think that was a really fun discussion and, and hopefully everyone got something to take away from it and Hopefully one of the main takeaways, listeners, if you're not already, is, is give Fantasy Critic a shot. It's a, I mean, it's free, which is great, um, so there's nothing to lose. And if you have a bunch of gaming friends, I, again, I've loved playing it for the last few years. And I might throw it to you, Steve. You want to you know, tell people how they can find Fantasy Critic uh, and yourself if you want to be found on social media yeah. and that kind of stuff? So um, the site is fantasycritic.games. You can find uh, Fantasy Critic on Twitter. We have a Discord that's very active. We have a subreddit that's not very active anymore. Uh, the subreddit was kind of the home for the Fantasy Critic community in the early days of the site, but things have really moved to Discord. So if you want to chat with the community, I would, that's where I would go. And if you are so inclined uh, to come and check out the Fantasy Critic Patreon, um, that has recently been launched, uh, and I would love your support. You know, I, I'm very excited for the Patreon. I've, I've obviously, through your Discord, and seen some of the ideas you have from on what people will get for contributing. I think that's it's very cool stuff uh, and very exciting. Because not to put you on the spot, but I don't think you've got you don't run any ads on the site, do you? There, there are no ads on the site. It's something I've considered. Uh, I might put ads on at some point, but I want to see how the Patreon goes because I do think that that is the best, most sustainable model for this sort of thing, is people paying for the content that they want to see as opposed to relying on third-party ads. Because third-party ads, if I'm being honest, one thing it would do is make the site slower, it would make the interface worse, and a good amount of people would just ad block it anyway. So I'm not against advertising as a a rule, uh, certainly, but I think that the best monetization model for things like this is people paying when they can. So that's what I'm going to... At the time we're recording this, the Patreon has not yet gone live, so I can't say how um, 
how it is done yet, <laughs> but by the time that the listeners are listening to this, the Patreon will be live, so you can go and check it out. Yeah, but I'll, I'll certainly be there day one, so that's very exciting, and I'm just yeah keen to see how it evolves the site, because you did a great job uh, this last year, this year, with all the, the many, many new features you've added, uh, and I'm just keen to see if and how the site continues to evolve, because it's been, it's been great. Brendan, do you want to round us out and tell people where they can find us if they want to engage with us at all? As always, uh, if you want to follow Blowing Cartridges because you've enjoyed this episode, if, if this is the first episode you've ever listened to, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at BlowCartPod. You can email us at BlowingCartridge at gmail.com. You can find us on all podcast services. You can find us on Spotify. You can find us on Apple Podcast. If you're on Apple Podcasts, or even if you're not on Apple Podcasts and you have an account, please do leave us a review. Leave us a five-star review because that really helps us with getting more visibility, getting charting on various podcast charts and the like, and just does help get us more viewers. And if you want to talk to myself or Zach personally, we're always quite active on Twitter. You can find Zach at Eggerino. You can find me at Tamazoid. Please tell us what games of 2022 you were very keen for. And uh, all these details will be in the show notes as always. So you can click links and find it that way. And I'll be sure to put in the Patreon for Steve in there as well. Because we're big fans of Fantasy Critic. And we'll be hoping for all its success. Yeah, and one, one final, I mean, we, we always do our usual roundup, but if you're actually interested in our leagues, um, you can find them. They're all both, well, they're public out. The one Brendan and I own is public on Fantasy Critic, which means anyone can watch it and look at it. Uh, we'll put the link in the show notes, so I'll, uh, if that's okay, Brendan. And similarly, I'm in a second league with Steve and a bunch of others called the League of Champions, which you can find as well. Um, so, if, you know, if you're just curious to see and follow something, you can check it out if you're interested in playing if there's enough if a bunch of people tweet at me saying i want to play but i have no one to play with i'm happy to start a league and and see how we all go so yeah let, let us know thank you for having me you two it's been great yeah thank you for coming on yeah thanks so much for coming on steve we really appreciate it and we'll definitely have to get you on again yeah i'd love to until next time everyone bye